The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. Since leaving Deutsche Bank a few years ago, Anshu Jain has mostly kept a low profile, at least with people like us, the press. But he's been quite busy. He's now the president of Kenneth Fitzgerald, the New York-based securities firm where he works alongside Howard Lutnick, the chairman, on strategy for client-focused businesses like investment banking. Anshu rose to the top of Germany's leading lender in part because he helped Deutsche Bank avoid some of the more terrifying fates of its rivals during the financial crisis. Give it a listen. So, Anshu, thank you for coming by here. Uh, Let's think back. Ten years ago, um, where were you when the financial crisis hit? Or I should even pose it differently. When did you realize we were in a crisis, not just some sort of market turbulence? Rob, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, let me contextualize that that by saying that 10 years ago, I was running the markets division at Deutsche Bank, which is their debt and equity business. And if you think back to the five or six years prior to uh, 2008, actually 10 years prior to, we'd Mm -hmm. had LTCM, we'd had the Asian debt crisis, we'd had Russia, we'd uh, we'd had Argentina. So the concept of major market disequilibrium, uh, large moves, having to worry about risk, having to worry about tail events was not new. And I would say that this version really began for me in the fourth quarter of 2006, when we began hearing the first set of concerns about subprime. Yeah. Uh, As early as Q1 2007, it was clear that subprime was uh, something which we had to watch very closely. That was when we see things like like HSBC, household, you saw the cracks starting to appear. And then, quarter 2007, Bear Stearns had a credit fund, which went under. Right. For me, that was probably the first moment when I began to think that we had at least a very serious market dislocation underway. Yeah. By July 2007, I still remember we had a, uh, a meeting. Each organization has its pivotal moment where the concerns coalesced from something which we were worried about to something which I felt needed a strategic redirection. And we put um, our risk thrusters uh, into reverse. This is July 07, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that this was a unique and consensus view at all. Equity markets continue to scream upwards. There was a drumbeat of concerning events coming through mortgage and credit markets. Equity markets were largely ignoring it. And frankly, even within mortgages, I had two schools of thought within my company. I had as many people telling me that this is just a short-term correction, things would be fine, Uh, the underlying real estate market is not uh, troubled and will recover. So it was by no means a consensus view. Then March 2008, Bear Stearns goes under. But the Fed does a great job lining J.P. Morgan up, providing J.P. Morgan a second loss financing uh, option, which allowed Bear Stearns to get absorbed without any systemic implications. So I would categorize really fourth quarter 06 through summer 2008 as a slowly mounting period of concern, where certainly for the last year, we'd moved into major risk reduction mode, but I didn't think that we had a significant systemic problem at hand until 
until September so, so when and when, when did that that was it very clear to you as soon as the you know the, the bankruptcy occurred and the dominoes started to wobble so i'll give you a personal viewpoint which i'm trying not to be conditioned by everything i've read since yeah. i'll try and give you my it's monday morning september 15th 2008 i went to bed sunday night in touch with my new york team who you were, were in london at the time i was in london but we had obviously representation uh, in the room. And uh, first, it looked like, of course, Barclays was going to take uh, Lehman over. Uh, that was the view all the way through Sunday, sort of late afternoon. And then it began to look like that may not happen. Mm -hmm. But my assumption still was, because I'd been part of the LTCM process, where the Fed famously brought everyone into a room and said to us, that, look, everyone's better off if we have clear understand, uh, clear understanding. Everybody put, a, put their money up. I mean, money not up, everybody, but more I importantly, and Bear didn't, we but. were calmly told that, look, we're all derivative counterparties to LTCM, and let's make sure this does not become systemic. We saw Bear Stearns get resolved. Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine. Lehman going into administration was one thing. But when I was told that there were absolutely no agreements on what was going to happen to derivative counterparty risk, to the unsecured creditors, to the collateralized lending, to the prime broker. Uh, Lehman was a top five, top six prime brokerage yeah. house. That came as a little bit of a surprise for me. And yes, I must confess, Monday morning for the first time, it felt that the virus had jumped from being something which was contained to fixed income markets to now becoming systemic. And then at that, did you think that, oh, we have a real problem in the markets? Did you think we had a global economic crisis? Did you think we were staring at the precipice of a, of a sort of depression? Or, I mean, did, when did that kind of sink in? So you got to go step by step. The fact that it was global was clear from the beginning. In mm. fact, as the, uh, the cracks in the mortgage market in the U.S. began to appear, don't forget UBS was reporting huge losses. Uh, we've talked about Northern Rock already. I could see that some of the German Landesbanks had exposure. There were, there were other Swiss institutions that were creaking. There was uh, uh, trouble in the Benelux. So the fact that this was, at the very least, on both sides of the Atlantic was not new. Mm. Now, the jump to the real economy and those concerns didn't come until later. So I would say the second phase for me, which was the most concerning of all, is when we saw the total breakdown of confidence. And that came very shortly after Lehman. Uh, and I think it's sort of became clear to us when the money market funds began to break the buck, which was very soon after, I think three or four days yeah. later. That's right. And once you look at the way wholesale banking works, for me at least, it was clear that if the providers of wholesale structured finance to the banks no longer had confidence, we had a very serious problem. So, of course, as a consequence of pulling back risk, you guys, Deutsche Bank, did, didn't do so poorly out of the crisis. I mean, you didn't have the kinds of, of uh, near-death experience, did you? Well, um, there are many that give us a lot of credit uh, for steering the bank through that crisis, but I would tell you, Rob, it was an awful experience. Mm. We lost an awful lot of money. Uh, we wound up suffering some real client franchise damage. It was not easy. It was not fun. It was seriously unpleasant. But yes, given that we were one of the leading uh, equity and particularly leading debt houses in 2006-07, if you were to benchmark us to other firms that had similar exposure, you can say that we did uh, relatively well. And I think a huge part of that comes down to the fact that it was pretty early on, uh, June, July or 07, 
that we decided to start reducing risk. For all that, fourth quarter 2008 was an absolute nightmare. It was terrible everywhere. What, how, now let's jump forward a bit here. You know, 10 years uh, since Lehman, you are now uh, the president of Kenner Fitzgerald. You're running a, a, a private securities firm here. Uh, you, you clearly have a view about where the modern financial system is going, and I'm sure that that's conditioned about from the experience of the 2008 crisis, but also the response, whether it's regulatory, political, or otherwise. What's your sense of where? Right, so if you trace back um, the state of finance today, um, if we all agree that I think, um, and I think we will, that the events of uh, 2007, 2008 were the most fundamentally critical in recorded financial history. If you go back a couple hundred years, I don't think there is objectively another incident where markets moved that much, where the real economy was impacted as heavily, where the politics of several countries were so uh, incredibly impacted, where the world literally had to come together uh, to stave off uh, further contagion. It's not surprising that the decisions that were made in the subsequent five to 10 years have shaped the modern shape of finance, or the modern world of finance, I should say, and its immediate future. So if we trace through some of the major trends that have emerged, I would list them as follows. Capital rules changed, should have changed, did change incredibly. Um, Banks went from having to hold uh, clearly inadequate amounts of equity Uh, against the amount of risk that they had uh, to a a regime uh, which led to multiples uh, of equity capital against the same units of of market risk. Uh, Wholesale funding, which to me was probably the chief cause, if you were to go to the heart of what caused most institutions to fail, in the short run, it always winds up the inability to finance. So for institutions that didn't have access to retail deposits, including some that did have access to retail deposits, Reliance on wholesale funding was viewed as one of the great concerns. Huge restrictions were put in place. Business models were restricted. A whole whole set of changes uh, have rippled through the financial system. Mm. So what has that led to? I think uh, the impact is fairly clear. Uh, It's led to the creation of a few banks that utterly dominate the industry. So you've gone from where something like 50 or 60 firms, there was an entire ecosystem of financial institutions in 2005-06. You had the U.S. broker-dealers, you had the Morgan Stanleys, the Goldman before becoming a bank holding Mm -hmm. company, but you also had a DLJ, you had a Lehman, you had a Bear Stearns, uh, and so on and so forth. Middle-sized institutions that were flexible, some partnerships, others which were publicly listed, but none which took customer deposits, none which were huge. Um, Then you had sort of the commercial banks at the time, which was Citi, JP, uh, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and, and so on. Sure. And then you had a set of of European, Japanese, and Asian challengers. You had Nomura, you had Deutsche Bank, you had UBS, you had Barclays, you had Credit Suisse, mm. and so on and so forth. Um, Act two, scene one, 10 years later, you've got five behemoths, each one of them American. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about that. In my opinion, that has been a direct consequence of the capital and liquidity rules which regulators have put forward correctly in my opinion, where they have said if you want to play a role in underwriting huge amounts of market risk, providing markets and derivatives and so on and so forth, you have to have vast amounts of capital. Um, That has led to a consolidation of market share in those hands. And of course, for a whole 
different set of dynamics, each one of those competitors is American. Yeah. The middle has vanished completely. So the broker-dealer of 2005, 6, 7 no longer exists. No, they don't. You've got some excellent, small, nimble corporate finance advisors uh, and underwriters, typically advisors. You've got the Molises of the world, the Rothschilds sure. of the world, Lazard. the Lazards of the world, exactly. Yeah. So it's become this. And, and you do have uh, Lehman, or sorry, you have uh, Barclays, of course. You have UBS, you have Deutsche. Oh, you have by no means. Credit Suisse, am I, but they are not. But as if you, you say, look at the market share, yeah. uh, if you take the combined market share of, and I think it would be in this order, Deutsche Bank was the biggest of the European contenders into the US. We were a top five competitor mm -hmm. at the time. Barclays was nipping right at our heels. UBS was right in there. Credit Suisse was right in there as well. Yeah. If you take the combined market share of those four firms, in 2005, 6, 7 versus where they are today. So you've gone from like a bulge bracket to like a top three, four. Correct. Kind of. And also in the U.S., don't forget, um, you had a whole slew of competitors. J.P. Morgan, Bamel, Citibank did not dominate the landscape nearly as completely as they do today. So mm -hmm. there's been a huge consolidation of market share in those top five firms. Um, and then you've got a whole series of niche players that do various things. Um, I believe that will moderate in the years to come. Uh, I think there is room for that middle-sized player as long as he does not take customer deposits, as long as, particularly if they don't use public capital, the leeway and flexibility then is far greater, which allows you to compete effectively. You just have to be very disciplined and smart in the choices you make when you do that. The second trend, which is to me more debatable, and this is more of a question in my mind, Rob, would be why is it that technology, which is so completely disintermediated, other industries, particularly including yours, mm -hmm. have not hit finance as hard? I would link some of that to the events of 2008. The very strong regulatory backlash that took place uh, hurt bank profitability to an extent, forced them to hold vast amounts of equity, but it also deepened the moat around the industry. I think it's served to a large extent as a deterrent against Absolutely. electronic disintermediation. Now, I don't think that will last forever. So I can see two trends which will emerge uh, as we move into the post-crisis era uh, of bank regulation. Yeah, on that second one, I mean, it is quite, it's, you, you, the, the idea that the amount of compliance that's required, the amount of capital, of course, and all, when you look at what it takes, you ask anyone in Silicon Valley, hey, why don't you get into this? They just think that business, and by the way, they're all going to get their core businesses re re regulated in some way that, that we don't know quite yet, right? But uh, they, see, they see the banking industry and think, oh, that looks, that looks like a huge drag. I don't want to do that. But uh, to your point, there, there are movements afoot. If you, you know, go to Washington, you talk to the OCC and other regulators, they're starting to think, are we, uh, in, are we hindering competition with our regulatory framework? Well, they needed to do uh, what had to be done. The, uh, the pendulum did need to swing to an extreme to swing back somewhere near the middle. But if we look forward over the next five years, I would predict that just as some of uh, the very tough parts of that regulation moderate more towards the middle, it will bring with it competition um, from the technology sector for many aspects of finance, not just payments and retail lending, which is what you see today. Right. But even in the so-called B2B space, I think you will see more electronic competitors. Equally, I think banks have not really used technology to its fullest uh, in order to refine their own business models, yeah. in large part because they were so beset with 
um, various forms of stress testing, raising capital, cleaning up their balance sheets. I don't think the core of the technology revolution has been seized by financial institutions. So where so where does that, where does that take you now in your in the sort of next stage of your career? You're you're at Canfords Gel, but you've done some other things. You've looked you've worked in some fintech uh, uh, arenas. You know how do you how are you going to take this this your view on the industry into a new venture or so um, a logical outgrowth of the conversation we've been having, Rob, is a little bit some of the thoughts that we are pursuing at Cantor, which is to say that um, if we think of ourselves as a very client focused, nimble, middle sized financial institution now twelve thousand people in multiple locations around the world. Uh, some would question how middle-sized that is, but compared to the firms we've just talked about, some could, one would argue that we're actually tiny in comparison. Sure. Um, but the important thing for us is if we can be very focused on our client needs and if we are spared some of the um, very restrictive elements, which by definition uh, deposit-taking institutions are subject to, that confers upon us an agility and a client focus, which could be a competitive strength. Other businesses, that, I mean, so you know, are you going beyond broker dealer and sort of other 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 parts of the financial system where you think you guys have an opportunity. So Cantor's got three businesses: we're an interdealer broker, we're a very successful real estate company, and we're a full service investment bank. And really, we're thinking about uh, advancing each of those businesses, mm-hmm. uh, keeping in mind some of these trends that we've talked about. So inside the investment bank, we certainly feel there are niches which we can approach. Um, and again, we're very realistic about what we can achieve because the reality is scale very quickly becomes a double-edged sword. Uh, so growing profitably and growing in a very focused fashion is something we're focused on. And how, what's, what is it like searching for talent out there compared to when you were at Deutsche or, or you know, one of the bigger firms? So those are the two dislocations which I think the 2008 crisis have left us with. Um, Careers are not advancing as rapidly at the banks as they used to. Uh, banks have thought of themselves as a regulated utility for a while. Now, of course, that does represent a mismatch between some of the talent which the industry attracted uh, during that time mm-hmm. because uh, obviously things were moving along at a very rapid pace for a long time. And certainly over the last five years, that pace has slowed down. So uh, our ability to attract some of that talent is, uh, is reasonably good as a consequence. And then the second dislocation, of course, is the cost of capital is different. Uh, if you're not a deposit-taking, not a public, take, uh, not a public equity-funded bank, uh, and you're private, sure. So both of those, we hope, will play to our advantage. And and what what those are the opportunities. I mean, what kind of worries you when you look at uh, whether um, you know globally looking at emerging markets, looking at the buildup of debt in, in corporate sector, uh, pension mismatches. What are the sort of things that you think are? Again, I'm not asking you to say where is our next crisis going to be because that's. I mean, if you've got the answer, fantastic. But what what are the areas that that give you some concern? Well, let me start by saying the thing which doesn't concern me as much as the banking sector and the hedge fund st- um, sector. So the two areas which looked vulnerable ten years ago. Uh, are sitting here today with much lower leverage and a much more stable capital structure, as it were. Hedge funds uh, carry far lower leverage. Banks, as we've said, uh, are armor-plated in a variety of different ways. Um, Where would my concerns be? Stretch valuations would be my chief concern. Uh, We've had 10 years of very easy monetary policy. Yes, finally, in the U.S., we're seeing uh, an end to it, but in the rest of the world, it still is by historical standards, and even in this country by historical standards, the cost of money is still way too cheap. 
Um, and as that comes to an end, I think the stretch valuations across equity markets, particularly credit markets, concern me, but not in the way they did 10 years ago. Uh, I could see a serious uh, repricing of risk. I don't see it morphing into something which then becomes anything in parallel to 2008. Uh, if you're asking for uh, me for what could be the next trigger point for very serious concern, I would have to say a stretched sovereign balance sheets uh, this time around is, is, is a greater source of worry for me. Well, I mean, and we're not just talking about uh, Turkey, say, or Indonesia. I mean, if you look at the United States balance sheet, I mean, there's, we had uh, Ray Dalio was speaking to us the other day, and he was pointing out that uh, the U.S. balance sheet is getting pretty stretched, and there's a lot of money that there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of bond issuance, and it's not clear who's going to buy that those bonds. So the thing with Turkey, Indonesia, uh, countries like that, Venezuela, Argentina, is for years it's been known that these are stretch balance sheets. The yield that they carry are very high. They come, if you will, with a large warning label attached to them. Yes. So the people that are investing in these markets tend to be frontier hedge funds, very sophisticated investors, which doesn't mean that they enjoy losing money, but their ability and willingness to take volatility on and capability to manage volatility is of a high order. So I've never worried from that standpoint when I see uh, high-yielding markets go through volatility. Right. It's obviously uh, a tragedy in the country if, you, if borrowing costs go way sky high and the economy slows. But as you say, it doesn't become then a systemic I'm just talking from a crisis. global standpoint. Yeah. It's a tragedy uh, if you take a look at the uh, growth patterns because in, in many of these countries you've got vast young populations that are depending upon financial markets in order to get funding to create jobs. I mean, that's a whole yeah. separate point, Rob. You're dead right. I mean, the dislocation in Turkey is going to be very real unless this lira crisis comes to an end soon. Um, we've seen the same thing in Argentina. You've, you've seen the same thing in Venezuela. But my point simply is, sitting here in New York, worrying about global capital markets, the impact of these economies does not concern me as much. My view on the U.S., has been the same. Till the U.S. enjoys the status of the world's reserve currency, it can afford to run, to run a much bigger deficit than it does today. Those are just the facts. Yeah. If you have an economy in the, Asia, um, in the Asian time zone uh, which has got serious saving surpluses, which country would they most want to see their reserves in? Dollars by a mile. Uh, the euro was the main competitor, and frankly, with the events uh, of the last five years, that is no longer the case. So I don't, again, worry, which is not to say that uh, the U.S. can be um, uh, forever print money. completely <laughs> right. uh, blind to the cost of uh, spiraling debt. But, I, but the state of U.S. borrowing doesn't concern me. What about, what about the euro zone? I mean, how concerned are you uh, with I mean, what we've seen, certainly in places like Italy, uh, where there is, you know, there's a really it's not it's not diminishing. There is a growing backlash against the single currency. So yes, the events of 2012 were very fresh in my mind, where there were a slew of European countries where their indebtedness was high and their ability to repay, and, 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 and the current state of deficit meant that the situation was getting worse, not better. The ECB intervened massively and with full support. Um, six years later, how many of those countries have radically altered their financial profiles? Some have, others have not. Uh, so Spain, I don't want to go maybe. Spain has done a good job and has paid a political price. Yeah. Uh, for true. doing so, but is in a stronger position today than it was a few years ago. Yeah. And Germany? Very strong, obviously, uh, but uh, has social political questions that are being asked. India. 
I mean, you, you, you've done some work since uh, over the last couple of years as well, investing, or I think, in India, looking at the financial sector in particular. Uh, what's your, are you a big bull right now? So India's got some positive uh, elements which will last it uh, through the cycle. Um, you've got a very large demographic dividend which the country enjoys. Um, 60 odd percent of, of the population, I think, is median age 28, or median age is 28. And yeah. 60% of the population is below that, some stat like that. Um, very rapid uh, spread of the internet uh, through the retail population. Uh, mobile phones have gone from 100 million up to 400 million, will be 700 million shortly. Those are very powerful trends. Um, the country is growing, not as rapidly as it should, but has grown somewhere between 6 to 8% over the last many years. But short term, I think there are some factors which uh, would argue for caution. Such as? Um, inflation is, is uh, poking its head back up again. Um, the rupee has, uh, has, has lost some ground. Anytime oil strengthens, right, so um, that's, that's right. India, which is a net oil importing economy, you have to be uh, watching very closely. Elections are around the corner. So, but those are short-term factors. Medium, long-term India-China are definitely two economies which I remain positive on. Good. Well, thanks for coming by, aren't you? Enjoyed it, Rob. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the latest podcast of our 10 Years After Exchange series. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wancox.